X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, October the 19th. Today is the very first day of the Fall Pledge Drive. The Local could not exist without the ongoing support of X-Ray members. To keep this resource going, please do call right now, 503-233-9729, 503-233-X-Ray. You can also go online to xray.fm slash donate. I will say the number again, 503-233-9729, 503-233-X-Ray. Go to the website at xray.fm slash donate. It's a great day to donate to X-Ray and encourage a couple friends to do likewise. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, October 19, 1949, the Federal Works Administrator set the minimum wage of 40 cents per hour to 75 cents per hour. And today, back in the day, October 19, 1960, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested for violating Georgia's newly enacted anti-trespass law for staging a sit-in protest at eight stores in downtown Atlanta. 52 people, including Martin Luther King Jr., were arrested in downtown Atlanta after refusing to leave their seats at the lunch counter. At the time, Jim Crow segregation laws and customs were heavily enforced. Black people and white people were required to use separate water fountains, bathrooms, ticket booths, and other public spaces. And black people were banned from being served at the department store lunch counters. The first organized sit-in movement occurred in February 1960, where three North Carolina A&T students at Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina, calmly and peacefully sat at a segregated lunch counter and refused to leave until they were served. Soon, other students joined the protest, and their tactics spread to other students in other states. By August 1961, more than 70,000 participants took part in sit-ins, which generated over 3,000 arrests. And in city after city, like Nashville, Tennessee, the sit-ins led to desegregation lunch counters. Today, October 19, 1973, President Richard Milhouse Nixon refused to hand over Watergate-related tapes to special prosecutor and former Harvard Law School professor Archibald Cox. The scandal stemmed from the Nixon administration's continuous attempts to cover up their involvement in the June 17, 1972 break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters of the Washington, D.C. Watergate office building. The Nixon administration had been engaged in widespread corruption, and now, after the five perpetrators were arrested, the press and U.S. Justice Department connected the cash found on them to the Nixon re-election campaign committee. The Senate Watergate hearings were broadcast nationwide by PBS, and witnesses testified that the president approved plans to cover up administrative involvement in the break-in. They also testified there was a voice-activated taping system in the Oval Office. The administration resisted the probes throughout the investigation. That led to a constitutional crisis. Later in 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Nixon must release the Oval Office tapes to government investigators. The tapes revealed that Nixon did conspire to cover up the break-in. The House Judiciary Committee then approved articles of impeachment against Nixon, and Nixon resigned from office August 9, 1974. 1973 was a formative year for much of the modern conservative movement. The Heritage Foundation was founded by Paul Weyrich and Joseph Coors. The American Conservative Union, Young Americans for Freedom, started CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And in response to the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, the National Right to Life Committee was formed the oldest and largest pro-life organization in the United States. And that growing conservative movement remembered some lessons of 1973, what they might do if they had another chance at a president who faced impeachment. Yesterday, back in the day, October 18, 1977, auditions for Animal House were held at the University of Oregon. Extras had a chance to audition at the EMU, the Herb Memorial Union building at the U of O, to be included in one of the most successful American film comedies of all time. 
150 men and 50 women were chosen to appear in that film, earning $2.30 an hour. And Eugene, Oregon, and the University of Oregon provided the setting for the story of the disreputable Delta Tau Chi fraternity and the mayhem they create, set in the year 1962 at fictional Faber College. Toga, 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 toga. Today we will have your quick six news headlines. Alex Zielinski of the Portland Mercury joins with their investigative report. And we have an interview with Kelly Russell of Artisan Auctions. Kelly brings an update on how nonprofits are raising dollars in these challenging times. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon is officially done burning coal for energy. PGE has now permanently closed the Boardman plant, the last coal-fired power plant in operation. Boardman in Eastern Oregon was closed down on Thursday. Plant closed 20 years ahead of schedule, according to the 2010 legal agreement. It was aimed at reducing air pollution. Note the state still gets some coal-fired electricity from power plants in other states, but it is now official after years of talking about it. There are no more coal plants burning in Oregon. Spokesperson PGE said the closure is going to eliminate about 2 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions that were coming from that plant. PGE's power mix was roughly 15% coal-fired power before Boardman closed. PGE still does get coal-fired power from the coal strip plant in Montana, and it partially owns that plant. So where's the power going to come from now? Much will be replaced from hydropower from Bonneville. And PGE is also developing a new renewable energy project in Morrill County. That's the Wheat Ridge Renewable Energy Project, aimed at producing 300 megawatts of wind and 50 megawatts of solar. A local protester said that Portland police made her take a pregnancy test after she was arrested. Ellen Bennington attended a protest near Mayor Wheeler's apartment in the Pearl District August 31st. Police declared a riot after some of the protesters broke a window of the local business and dispersed the crowd. Bennington says she was leaving the protest following police orders when a van pulled up to her and she was arrested. It was a police bureau van. She was charged with disorderly conduct, interfering with police officer, and possessing a concealed weapon. She had a sheathed knife in her backpack. Bennington was taken to the detention center. She refused to speak with police without a lawyer. A medical staff member began asking her questions about her mental health and asked her for a urine sample. She was told the sample was for analysis to make sure you're not pregnant. Bennington said she was not pregnant, but then was told if she did not provide the sample, she would be put into disciplinary solitary confinement. Eventually, she gave in and provided the sample. Spokesperson for the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office said that pregnancy tests are common. Apparently, they determine whether an inmate should receive an electronic body scan, which is not safe for pregnant people. But civil rights attorney Alan Kessler says that forced pregnancy tests are not legal in sites of 2018 Oregon Supreme Court case. In the state versus Mansour, the court ruled that cell phones could not be searched without a warrant as they might reveal the arrestee's pregnancy status. Kessler's quote, It's not hard to imagine disturbing reasons why the police might want this information. It's more difficult to come up with a legitimate reason. Since the night of the protest, charges against Bennington have been dropped. In your daily dose of coronavirus data, COVID cases are spreading faster in Oregon and around the world. 220 new cases yesterday, zero new deaths, good news. We're now at 620 confirmed deaths and 39,532 confirmed cases. But October saw two record-breaking days. October 5th to 11th, Oregon recorded its highest weekly new case total at 2,418. Experts say that trend is continuing upwards. We've talked about it here. People are inside more, outside less. School has started again. Plus, you got the president barnstorming the country, breathing on people. 
Oregon's numbers are still relatively low compared to other states. Experts, though, are saying that winter is going to see a surge in new cases as people spend more time indoors. While previous outbreaks could be traced back to clusters or bigger outbreaks, the new trend features more sporadic or untraceable cases. Young adults aged 20 to 29 are the most impacted group. Children's ages 10 to 19 also saw a big increase in cases right around when school started. Portland is seeing a major shortage of homes for sale. According to the head of John L. Scott Real Estate, Portland is virtually sold out. September saw a 16% drop in houses listed compared to August from 3,885 to 3,264. The inventory of homes was at a historic low in September. In January 2019, there was a 3.3-month supply. That figure is calculated by dividing active listings at the end of the month by the number of closed sales and homes under construction. That 3.3-month supply was considered a seller's market last year, compared to time periods when there's four- to six-month supply. But check this out. In September, there was a historic low of 1.1 month of supply. That's basement-level inventory in a state with the largest housing shortage in the nation. It's an opportunity for sellers and for builders, but of course, who wants to sell their house if you don't know where you're going to go and you don't really want to be moving? And how are you going to build if people are sick and if you're worried about getting people sick and you're in the middle of a pandemic economy? All that means, houses are going up in price. First nine months of 2020 saw a median cost increase of 5.7%, making the current median home value $433,500. Tell you what, when I was a kid, that sounded like an awful lot of money. Republican state lawmakers are suing Governor Kate Brown for abusing emergency authority. Three Republican state legislators filed a lawsuit against Governor Kate Brown on Friday. The lawsuit claims the governor exceeded her constitutional authority with her pandemic emergency orders. State Senator Dennis Linthicum from Klamath Falls, State Representatives E. Warner Reschke from K Falls, and Mike Nearman from Independence say their rights were invaded by Brown's orders. They say their ability as lawmakers was hampered. These lawmakers voluntarily participated in a walkout to block a climate bill earlier this year instead of performing their duties as lawmakers. Another plaintiff, Neil Ruggles of Washington County, claims the shutdown deprived him of mental, physical, and social benefits of his martial arts practice. He couldn't do his karate. <laughs> oh my God. Really? He couldn't do his karate? Neil Ruggles? No indication that Neil Ruggles is a part of Cobra Kai. Ruggles did start a GoFundMe in September. Apparently his name is Ruggles. That GoFundMe so far has raised $18. We covered here on the local earlier previous lawsuit filed by the Elkhorn Baptist Church against Brown. That was overturned by the Oregon Supreme Court earlier in the pandemic. The Oregon Board of Education is standing with black lives. On Thursday, the State Board of Education passed a resolution calling for support of people of color, especially black families and students. The resolution recognized institutional racism in Oregon's past as well as its present. As students have moved online, virtual learning settings have been the site of racist comments. Public schools also saw racist incidents in the past few years when school was still in person. Last month, the board prohibited hate symbols in public school buildings. They're also looking to address institutional discrepancies, including an 11% difference in graduation rates between black students and white students in Oregon. Some other school districts have already been vocal about their commitment to anti-racism, including Lake Oswego, Tiger Tualatin, and North Clackamas. And here's some news. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Portland is the ninth best place to live in the nation, according to a new study. U.S. News and World Report ranked the top 150 places to live in the United States, and our town landed number nine. Number nine, 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 number nine.
We didn't do quite as well in value or quality of life, but we did very high in desirability. They cited the World Naked Bike Ride, by the way, the annual adult soapbox derby, and unique donut shops. Woohoo! Also museums, art galleries, the oldest public library on the West Coast. Did you know that? That's pretty cool. And all the outdoor recreation on our doorstep. And so being the top 10 might sound good for Portland, but we weren't number one. That honor went to Boulder, Colorado. So we might feel pretty good about our score. Don't tell that to Cobra Kai. That sucks. I did my best. What did you say? I said I did my best. You're nothing. You lost. You're a loser. No, you're the loser, man. Oh, I'm the loser, huh? Yeah. X-ray. You can count on Alex Zelensky to never shy away from covering stories and hard-hitting topics that others may find too uncomfortable or difficult to talk about. This week, Alex talks to Jefferson Smith about a challenging piece she wrote about one of Portland's local leaders with an alleged dark past. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing well. You wrote a really important, really challenging story. Uh, and the and and you might just you might just go through the painful story. You might just go through it. A heavy story. Heavy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you know, I, I know I don't have a ton of time, but I would love to to preview it a little bit, and you know, folks can explore on their own. Um. But yeah, so I spent the past month in change. Um. You know, reporting on protests, but also. Speaking, working on this longer investigative piece, um, speaking with a total of 11 different people who say they've experienced some kind of abuse, whether it's physical or sexual or psychological, uh, at the hands of a very well-known and revered member of Portland's Black community. Um, the man is Edie Mondanay, who is a longtime head pastor at uh, uh, North Portland Church uh, Celebration Tabernacle, and is also been the president of um, Portland's NAACP chapter for two years. Uh, and I was contacted originally through a number of members in the NAACP who began seeing some issues with Mondanay's financial handlings as the head of the NAACP, and they started kind of poking around. Some of them knew people who had attended this church, Celebration Tabernacle, that he um, he started, and, and he's the head uh, pastor of, uh, to see if there was any reason to believe, you know, Mondanay had similar financial issues at that church, and um, not only did they discover this was partially true, they, they also learned that there were uh, people who had left the church uh, after allegedly being uh, sexually abused by him, um, kind of an unexpected turn in their research. Uh, they were connected with one man in particular, um, and then kind of a, with his permission, uh, you know, turned his story over to me, which was kind of like pulling one thread, you know, um, all these other folks started kind of coming forward you know, from the past. He, he knew a, fo- a few folks still from, he had left about a decade ago. Um, because of this, he contacted me or connected me with a few other folks and they knew some other people and and they tried to dig up the contact information of other folks. A lot of people hadn't talked to each other for a decade, and um, but all knew they were there on the same time. And 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 my intention was to talk to anyone who was willing and, and interested in talking. And so it all ended up being people who kind of knew each other at the same period of time. I didn't cold call anyone. I didn't put anyone on the spot, you know. Um, and uh, I got a lot of different stories, um, a lot of, the majority of these folks 
who say they were at least three men were sexually uh, allegedly sexually abused. Um, and the majority of them are black men. Um, the majority of them are teens. And so the, 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 the reason I think this story is really tricky to write at a moment like this. And I think a lot of people understood that I was speaking to that the gravity of it, you know, in the moment of a, um, huge monumental movement towards, uh, that uplifting black lives and uh, centered on black lives and you want black leadership that is um, supporting and trusting. And I think that was kind of part of a lot of the reasons these folks reached out. I mean, they, they found out they weren't sure that Mondane was in this leadership position. They'd kind of, you know, blocked him out of their lives. And then when this investigation began from the NWCP folks, they realized that this guy this man was was representing them not only um, at the NAACP level but also at the national level. Uh, earlier this year, during protests, Mondane had spoken. He wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. He had spoken with CNN, and um, and it kind of accelerated, I think, their concerns that this person was still in a leadership position and um, getting a lot of support and respect for. Um, for what he was doing. Um, and I think it's a tricky story too, because this man has done a lot in the Portland community to spearhead really important campaigns, um, the Portland Clean Energy Fund, um, the, the whole conversation around uh, masonry buildings and, and putting, um, making sure that they're safe, but also not you know, taking down all of these historically black owned businesses and properties. Um, and a lot of criminal justice reform work. So, you know, it's a complicated story, but I felt really thankful and honored to tell it. Um, the folks who talked to me were incredibly brave. And, um, yeah, I feel hopeful that it's out in the open um, just to allow people to kind of give it a, give it a moment to, to settle in. How do you walk through that decision? How do you, as your... Uh, as you are um, covering the Black Lives Matter protests, as you are wrestling with the reckoning that is happening, as also you look at the sector that this is in, which is sort of the nonprofit sector, his, he has not made mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars uh, running, a, uh, running an entertainment outfit or made billions of dollars as a financier, but has gained public recognition as an activist. How do you walk through that decision? Right. Well, it's not easy. (laughs) Um, A lot of it was me talking to other people um, who had been longtime members and who are longtime members of the Portland Black community who can speak to and speak about the dynamics of it all a lot better than I can and, and understand it a lot better than I can. Um, and it's important to, to note that, yes, this is a man who's involved in nonprofit activist work, you know, um, but from what I've heard from these folks, you know, really took advantage financially of a lot of people um, for, for a while who were, who were young and, and not being paid for their work. Um, and, you know, while it's not heaps and heaps of money, there is still... Um, a, a financial aspect to this of of gaining money in that way. 
Um, I think it's messy and really speaks to the um, the nuance of black leadership in any city. Um, I uh, and, and leadership in general in, in communities that aren't just white male run. Um, really wanting to be productive and supportive and and, and help allow in any community a, a leader who's in a minority position or you know a um, non-white <laughs> group to um, to have them be fully held accountable I think is is sometimes scary and frightening when that community doesn't have you know as much leadership as they deserve and so maybe at some times they're um, they they are a little bit more cautious to question and to hold people to higher standards. And I think this is a moment when a, enough uh, people had, had seen this going on for long enough that it was time to kind of speak out. Alex Zelensky, thank you so much for spending time and, uh, and, and thank you for your work. Yeah, of course. With the absence of in-person gatherings, Portland's active nonprofit event scene has experienced significant changes. Up next, Andy Lindbergh sits down with Kelly Russell of Artisan Auctions. They discuss how the Portland Benefit Gala scene has adapted during the pandemic to keep needed funds flowing to the nonprofit sector. Uh, hi, Kelly. Hi, Andy. How are you? <laughs> I'm Hooray. good. I'm good. So, um, as we've talked about, I... I would like to hear from your professional experience, having you know years of of uh, event um, experience in Portland before the dark times. What what was the Portland you know benefit uh, and event scene like? Give us set set the stage so we know we can understand yeah. the extent that it's changed. Yeah, uh, the Portland event scene, it was it was vibrant. I mean, people had events all the time. It was interesting because I remember at one point in time talking with a friend and discovering that um, Portland on any like given Saturday in the height of auction season, as we call it, which is like, you know, kind of with the school year, mm-hmm. um, in the height of auction season on a given Saturday, you'd have anywhere from 14 to 18 events happening across the city. So just on one Saturday night? On one Saturday night, 14 to 18 events happening on one Saturday night. And then, of course, the next Saturday night, you'd have another 14 to 18. I mean, it was just what it was. And so um, all these events were great because, you know, different sizes. They could be 100 people. They could be 1,000 people. You could be in um, a small hotel banquet room situation all the way up to the convention center with lots of additional lighting and sound equipment and performance and production and it was it's a live event right it's a live so, event so we're we're talking about people sitting less than six feet apart you know yes so you know just i'm just trying to remember just back in my yes. foggy memory so we're you know so these are are typically there's you know folks buy tables and there's a uh-huh. meal served and maybe there's cocktails and there's music and so you serve uh, served and still serve as an auctioneer host. Um, what what else 
would what else went into getting an event put together in the old oh times? yeah well when you put an event together you know people would call us we're artisan auctions and uh they call us and they say hey we want to do this event and we'd usually take about a year to plan an event right so you mm -hmm. you take a full year so as soon as your event's done you're like awesome this was amazing you take a day off and you start planning and you your start next for one, next year right? yeah <laughs> so a lot of times what people do is they call us at artisan auctions and say hey we're planning an event for this day so we get a date on the calendar. We spend uh, four hours consulting with them throughout the year to make sure that what we're coaching them on is everything they need to do to be successful in their live event, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the live event, we then have this awesome plan, fully scripted event. The events are different, right? When you're at a live event, you go in and you mingle and you cocktail, right? You get a drink at the bar and you hang out with your friends and you give them a great big hug and you say, oh my gosh, it's so great to see you. And then someone up sneaks up behind you and gives you a big bear hug and you go, hey friend, and you turn around and you say hello, right? So you have all that environment as well as, you know, a band playing and, you know, hors d'oeuvres and catering and appetizers all yeah. coming out. All these things are happening, you know, lights are on, music's playing. It's all great, right? And then you go and you sit down. You know, there might be a silent auction happening. You go mingle about and mm -hmm. touch all the things, right? <laughs> and see if you want to buy them. Uh, and and then you, you uh, place your bids and away you go and you go into dinner, right? So you go into dinner and you sit down and there's usually some sort of ambiance music just to get going. Mm -hmm. And then you you uh, start enjoying your meal with your friends and you, hey, can you pass the butter? You know, all that mm -hmm. good stuff. Hey, can I have the coffee? You know, all that's happening at your table. There's community building that's happening yeah. at that table. And then of course, there might be a program. And in that program, you have, you know, executive director speak, you've got the auction happen you've got this special story for the mission moment or the fund to need or the special appeal and you have all those stories that happen it's so right and there everyone... in front of you I yeah mean, it's... right there so 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 here we are we've got these well planned out uh events that that play on our emotions that connect us to organizations so that so that we maximize giving and the there are, as you say, twelve to fourteen organizations every Saturday uh, in the fall and spring that are benefiting from these events. And now we can't have them anymore. So, uh, <laughs> so, so early March. So yeah. I I worked uh, the the Campfire Columbia event on mm -hmm. March fifth, eleventh, eleventh, March eleventh. During that event, we're huddling in the back of the room because <laughs> <remember> this. <laughs> the 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 state order is going to go into effect where we're being asked to isolate. Mm -hmm. And so yep. um, we had an event uh, scheduled, I think the next day in Eugene. Yep, the 12th. Yep. And, and, but the door closed. So mm -hmm. suddenly all of these organizations that are counting on this money uh, from these events can't have these events, can't get this money. What did you do? <laughs> oh, it was such an interesting night at Campfire, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it they got like, in just under the wire. <laughs> it was tr tricky and challenging, but we sure. managed, right? Yeah. So basically on March 12th, when we get the order here in Oregon specifically, we get the order that no more than 250 people can gather. We turn around and we say, 
Okay, time to call everybody that has an upcoming event because this is going to affect a ton of events. Because before, remember, events were, the majority of events are 250 people or more, yeah. right? A lot of times. And that 250 limit that we started with, it came down fast. So we had to be thinking about what are we going to do? So our first thing that we did, um, I I was really... <laughs> I, I was seeing this happening coming. I saw this coming. I saw it coming. I did. Yeah. And in in the end of February, I think I was just maybe a smidge ahead of it. But at the end of February, I was already talking to our friends at the AV department and saying, okay, this thing is really bad. And just let's just, can we just have a backup plan in place? Uh, like, you know, a studio where we can do these events. And, and the AV and, department is a media company in Portland. Yeah. Just to, in Portland. Yeah. To, they to are, yeah, context. they're a sound. Yeah. They're, they're an audiovisual company here in Portland that does a lot of events uh, with us live events and now virtual as well. But the, the idea was like, we have to have a place where we can conduct these events. You know, we have to have some place where we can make an event happen. And I said, is this going to work? Can we do an in-studio event? Yeah. And the answer was, I think this might work for I some of our clients. So, so we were ready to transition <clears throat> because we saw the need a couple weeks before. And so we brought the right team together and said, okay, what's it going to take? And then we're like, well, we have to also have our friends from Greater Giving join us because we need some way for people to bid from their homes. So we got to figure out what that looks like. And they had a mobile platform. Mm -hmm. It's something that had been in place already. So thankfully, you know, our partners over at Greater Giving had already set up a situation where there was mobile bidding in place. Our partners at the AV department, when we called them and said, hey, we need a studio situation, some way to, to still conduct fundraising events, they said, oh, yeah, absolutely, we're in. How can we help? And they set up a studio. Yep. And our, our friends at Swaim Strategies, when we said, okay, how are we going to do these now? We all got together in a room with, it was Artisan Auction, Swaim Strategies, uh, AV Department, and Greater Giving. We all sat down and we said, all right, now what? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. we had to come up with something. Because COVID-19 was going to make this a little bit, trickier. So we said, let's strategize. Yeah. And we did. And so what we came up with is a situation where we could do virtual events. And when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. Yep. And I'll, you'll hear me say that often, which means if someone's got a great idea, if we share it, we all get to benefit from it. Right. Mm -hmm. So when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. Sometimes you get to be the tide and lift everyone up. Right. Yeah. And there was this moment of, oh, my gosh, we came up with something really great that we can now utilize with a lot of people. And what ended up happening from that is instead of being like my idea, oh, you can't do this, too. It's mine. You know, we didn't do that. Instead, we turned around and um, all of our friends, all of them, the AV department, uh, a lot of my auctioneering friends called me and said, hey, what are you guys doing? How are you mm -hmm. doing it? How do I do this? Swim Strategies did a lot of webinars teaching other nonprofits how to do this. But not only other nonprofits, we collectively got together and taught other AV companies. We taught other event planners. We taught other auctioneers. We taught other companies all the way around how and other nonprofits how they could take their events virtual because when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. Well, and this and is that's what, what it's about. This is what I'm interested in because um, this uh, this catastrophe um, <laughs> is 
I, I can't I can't claim credit for that word. Uh, I like it. I'm borrowing it. <laughs> I will be borrowing it from yes. here on out. Um, has has created this uh, or um, expanded, let's say this mm-hmm. this new uh, this type of fundraising. So yes. So how do these events serve uh, 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 nonprofits now? What's what's the what? Give us this the sunny version of of a virtual event. Sure. Well, okay. So we can't gather, right? Yeah. It's that that's the bummer, right? The bummer is we can't gather, but that doesn't mean we can't all join together to support an organization that we love. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of these virtual events is, yeah, we can't gather. I'm, I, I mean, I think all of us are just absolutely chomping at the bit to get back out and hug our friends. That I truly believe. And I know that day will come again. Uh, but here's the reality. These virtual events do bring people together because if you watch them and you're watching them in live time and you're watching the chat window, now you go to a screen. Your venue is no longer at a hotel. It's no longer at a conference center. Your venue is now a screen that's in front of you. Yeah. And on that screen, you go to a space where you get to you go to a URL and you get to watch an event. Now, the event is going to still have a program arc like most uh, live events do. You have some sort of program arc that that guides you through the whole process of what this organization is about. But now it's done on a screen. So it's instead of being a live event, we're in a broadcast world, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different. But I think that people are willing to sit for 30 to 45 minutes to hear about your mission before they were coming in. And because they were occupied with things like, you know, eating a dinner and, oh, oh, there's a program starting. Let me see what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So if you give them a short, concise event, it's going to be great. And I think you can make it really, really fun and, and engaging. They, we have this new device now in front of us. It's always been there, really. But the chat window, the chat window is a feature that allows us to communicate with people that we know we would see in real life and be able to say, hey, how you doing? Hey, Andy, what's going on? Are you having a great night? Yeah, I am. What are you doing? I'm watching this amazing event for Guardian Partners. And, you yeah. know, it's like, yeah, that's super great and exciting and fun. And, oh, we we ask questions, silly questions sometimes to be like, you know, hey, what's everyone having for dinner? You know, just to see, you know, make it more real and try and normalize it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the difference is, is that you don't have the same dinner necessarily, unless you plan that for your group. And that's an option that you have, uh, unless you plan that for your group where a mm-hmm. caterer is sending it out to everyone, yeah. Most which people is, are, which are, is yeah. super fun. It is fun. Yeah. It's different. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a thing that you can do to kind of make it universally the same and keep it as close to normal as possible. I think people want to normalize this idea of virtual auctions because they are still fun. You yeah. just have to be fully aware of the fact that there are things that are going on in people. I mean, we stare at a computer screen for all day long now, yep. <laughs> pretty much. Um, so we do a lot of like watching a, a screen all day long. So we just have to be aware of not asking people to stare at it for two hours, what our normal mm-hmm. event would have been or four hours, what a normal event would have been. We can't do that to people. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the question is what's next? Mm-hmm. What, uh, you know, from, from what you, both anticipate from what you've seen uh, and the work that you've done and perhaps even what you would like to see, what happens? What Are there, are there going to be hybrid events where uh, people can come and, and be in the ballroom and watch it from home? Are, there, are organizations going to say, you know what, we're never going back? 
we're going to we're going to do two virtual events a year and you know we're not going to have to ask chicken or fish ever again <laughs> well let me gaze into my crystal ball here for <laughs> yes, a moment yeah yes uh so what i what i keep anticipating is that right now we are going to see, we are absolutely going to see some groups who say, you know what, a live event is not it for me. I'm going to stick with virtual forever because it's easier. And, and for some groups, it's easier because they may have different events all over the country. And now they can have one big like family reunion event virtually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, we have, we have a couple groups that we work with that have chapters that um one of them in particular that i think of often is a group that has uh, a main a main core base here in portland but they have a satellite group up in seattle they've got a group over in new york they've got a group over in florida and usually every single year they put on four different events mm -hmm. well that's a group that that is just one one organization and they're based in portland but they just happen to have pockets of friends yeah. in different locations uh, you know across the country so for them doing one event, that's one virtual event that they have to do instead of renting four different hotels in different places to do events in all those places. So we see, we see people that do that. We just did one for a group that has people in Texas and Florida and New York and I, everywhere, everywhere. They're all over the country. And it was so fun because we were able to bring them all together. Their, their main core was in Portland, but they were able to get people in California and all over the place to really participate in their events. So I do think we'll see some people who want to, who want to use the virtual method moving forward. So, so for the what's next, does that mean everyone will? No, absolutely not. Thankfully, they'll have some people. Yeah, yeah we, thankfully, yeah, we still we can, want live events. We want to be and, get gathered in person. Yeah. Oh yeah, we absolutely do, and it's it's something that we thrive for with, as being human. You know, we we thrive for attention and touch and and connection, and so it's important that we still have that. But these virtual events, I think, will live in perpetuity. However, I also think that um, we're going to see a slow. It's going to be slow getting back to those live events. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, I mean, it's important that we do too, because there are people who this is their livelihood as well. And we yeah. want to support them too. So um, as I look at it, I, what I see right now is I see that this next year, 2021, we're going to still see a lot of virtual events because until there's a vaccine that everyone has, it's just going to take a little bit of time for it to happen. Yeah. It's going to take, it's going to take distribution and marketing, all those, you know, or not marketing. Um, it's going to take uh, manufacturing and distribution before we get it to that, that immunity, that level that we need. So uh, I think it's going to take a little time and we're going to see a lot of events that are going to plan virtual for 2021. Mm -hmm. And I think in 2022, we're going to see some virtual again, but I think we're going to see people start doing more watch parties where there are smaller gatherings or, smaller uh, cocktail parties, okay. right? So yeah. that's where that hybrid kind of level comes in. We're going to see hybrid events and they're going to all be different <laughs> because that's the beauty. Yeah. Virtual events. One of the things I love is with a virtual event, anything that you see on TV, you can do for your event now. Yeah. You can have a game show. We love game shows. Yeah. Those are fun. Yep. You can do a game show. You can do a talk show. You can do whatever you want it to be. If mm -hmm. you've seen it on TV, I mean, maybe not sports as much. I don't know. Maybe. There's a, I I'm sure there's a way to do it. <laughs> there's, we'll think on that one. We'll yes. percolate and get it's back to you. It's time to long uh, jump for money. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. You're going <laughs> to love it. Uh, but the idea is that I think that 
you know, we've already seen some events that are doing watch parties. We've seen some events that are trying to transition because there are pockets of the community, whether it be in Oregon or any other state. Uh, there are there are different states opening at different rates, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of these areas, even within Oregon, um, are friends that have an event coming up with you shortly, Andy. That have mm-hmm. um, they have two spaces, and they're in an area where they can gather up to a hundred people because that's what is allowed in their yeah. county. So they're going to have a hundred people at one location and a hundred people at another location. And Andy's going to be in the studio, and he's going to be in the studio broadcasting to both locations. So they're both having this same experience at the same time. And that may be another thing that people decide to do if they want to have smaller cocktail parties of hundred people and not, you know, 250 or a thousand or anything like that. They may also, they may also tie this in. So in the future you can have your auctioneer be anywhere across the country. Mm -hmm. So they're in Portland and the event is happening and there's an event happening in Portland and New York and Florida and Seattle and Austin, Texas. You can have the market for D level celebrities is going to go through the roof. (laughs) Hosted by the guy that you remember from that one show. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, and this is what we're getting at. And so I'm going to wrap things up for us. Um, so uh, we've been talking with with Kelly Russell from Artisan Auctions. Um, how do people? Because I'm there are folks who, are, who might be listening to this who have have been convinced that this is a good a good thing for them. How do they get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your your services? Oh, thank you. Um, well, the best way to get a hold of us is you can do one of two things. You can call us directly, and that number is five zero three. And um, that's one way to do it. I think the best way to get a hold of us, though, is to go to our website, which is www.artisanauctions.com. That's A R T I S A N auctions.com. So if you need to get a hold of us, that's the best way to go. Fill out the contact us page and someone will give you a jingle back. That's great. Well, thank you for your insights. And and, uh, um, this this has been great. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> Thanks to Alex and Kelly for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And folks, remember, this is the first day of the fun drive. Email thelocal at xray.fm if you want to help. We could really use a few people to start peer-to-peer pages and invite other people to give. This needs to be a movement-building opportunity, not only a chance for people to give, but a chance to get other people to give and help out and participate. The local at xray.fm or heck you can email me at jefferson at xray.fm donations would be vastly appreciated you can do that at xray.fm slash donate thanks to alex and kelly for joining the local thank you for listening to the local your hometown in about 30 minutes and please do call to donate 503-233-xray that's 503-233-9729 or go to the website xray.fm and click the blue donate button thank you for your ongoing support we could sure use your help and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray. 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 X-ray.